Hey, what's up, Geekscapists and uh, Skype addicts? We're here with uh, Judd Winnick, who's got a brand new book. It's coming. It's coming out September first. It's called Hilo. This is um, the first in a series, The Boy Who Crashed to Earth. And if you guys are fans of Judd from like uh, The Adventures of Barry Ween or uh, some of his other works, maybe some of you hardcore comic book readers uh, remember him from like Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, Exiles. Um, I've been reading Judd's work for a long time. Um, this is a really good book to pick up. Thank uh, you. I've read it. And then it's to be continued because it's a series of books, right, Judd? Six of them. Yeah. Wait, it's like, there's six? You got yes. me an investment for six? Yeah, but, you know, that's like saying, hey, do you want one slice of pizza or do you want, like, six? And you'll say, well, I'll, I'll have six eventually. So, yeah. There's yeah six so far, them. so good. And, and, and you, like, you know, bring them out gradually. Uh, where'd you get the idea for it? My, uh, my son, actually, in the decade that I wrote superhero comics about three years ago he asked me dad can i read like your batman comics so he was seven at the time mm -hmm. and i said no no you may not because you know batman's got anger issues um and my run was it's as i explained to him you know the comics i was writing were for like teenagers and older kids so uh that was a flat no and then we went about uh trying to find him some you know, comic books for kids. We landed on Bone, Jeff Smith's mm. Bone series, which he went bananas for. And my buddy, who I've known for like 10 years, uh, was good enough to send us like T-shirts and posters and action figures. So I had suddenly Jeff a seven-year-old Bone super fan. Yeah, I've known Jeff for a long time. So they just loaded up a box and uh, my kid within a, a week or so was like, Head to toe bone, walking around with action figures, got the poster up on the wall, and I got a little jealous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because because all that, you got jealous that you didn't get the stuff, or you got jealous that there isn't merchandise like that for one of your, like Barry Ween or, or one of your properties. Well, that's one angle to go with, but in this yeah. case, I wanted to win back my son's love. Uh, <laughs> I just figured, truthfully, like, I can do this too. I, I can actually make him this happy. Like, joking mm -hmm. aside, I really thought, you know, I could probably do this. And that was, that was the first inkling of it. And uh, it was about uh, a full year later that I had the first draft done. You got right to it. Um, what's the process of making something like this? And maybe like, let, talk a little bit about what the book is about. Like sell the book to the viewers. Well, the elevator pitch would probably be that yeah. uh, Hilo. Oh, it's, and it's pronounced Hilo, by the way. Sorry about that. No, it's cool. I'm, I'm, I learned this a few months ago. I was, I was doing an interview with someone, and they, they call it Hilo. I said, no, it's Hilo. And they said, oh, I know the, the Hawaiian city. It's like, oh, right, that's pronounced Hilo? It's like, so there's a city in, in Hawaii named Hilo. Mm -hmm. So I learned that. So this is not going to be the first or last time I tell people, no, no, it's, it's Hilo, like high and low. So <laughs> there's that. Um, so the Hilo uh, is about a 10-year-old uh, boy named DJ. And DJ's not very good at anything. At least he doesn't think so. He's in a family of overachievers. He's got two older brothers who are like one's a, a tennis champ and a chemistry whiz. He's got two younger sisters. One is a dancer and she does ballet and she plays all musical instruments. And a youngest sister who's like already like jumped like two grades. And DJ is just okay. He doesn't think I actually excel in anything. Except uh, when he was seven years old, he had a best friend named Gina who lived next door. And he was the best, best friend anyone could possibly ever had. Then Gina moved away. 
And now DJ's been pretty much lousy at everything. At least he thinks so. Then one night, he's sitting in his backyard, and something falls out of the sky. And when he goes and looks in the crater, there's a boy there around his age wearing silver underpants. Mm-hmm. That's Hilo. And after that, there's a lot of running around and screaming and giant insect robots. It's good fun. Yeah. I can promise you guys, having read the first one, that um, there is a giant insect robot. And what, <laughs> what I like about it is your sequential storytelling is really damn good as, like, a, a cartoonist. Like, how much oh, of that uh, – did you, did you ever get away from – cartooning for a while between Barry Ween and this one? Yeah. Or, or, so, like, how much of how much of the process w- uh, was revision where you were kind of maybe shaking the cobwebs out as a cartoonist and being like, okay, let's get back to the nuts and bolts of, of putting this together and uh, talk about the, the storytelling process of going back to cartooning. It's an excellent question because I, I was fearful, like, yeah, this might be a little hard to sort of get, get my swing back. It was much harder than I thought. Uh, I think part of the reason I got back to doing is I missed cartooning so much. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't realize how, how much I missed it. it, it there had been, been years uh, when, well, when I meet someone, they say, well, what do you do? I say, I'm a cartoonist. And then for about four years, that really wasn't true. <laughs> you know, I was, you know, I'm writing superhero comics, which kind of makes me a writer, you know. Sure. And on the flip side, I was developing live action television. And there's not a lot of cartooning there. And uh, I was, I was truthfully, honestly, getting incredibly unhappy. So when I started to dive back into this, one, I was much happier. I realized that, oh, this is like who I am and this is what I do. Since I was a kid, I, I draw. I draw little pictures. But the flip side was that I was really rusty and I had to do this. Uh, I mean, the last thing I did was maybe an issue of Barry Ween where I like wrote it, drew it, soup to nuts, the whole thing um, by myself. And that, that might have been more than 10 years ago. So I had to figure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I draw, you know, and I did an animated series, which was, I was doing storyboarding, I was doing lots of stuff, but how do I do this? And it was a process of sitting down and going to final draft, uh, meaning the program, and I was, I started writing, I thought, like, I'll write the whole damn thing, and then I'll draw it. I'll, like, you know, that'll be easy. And I wrote and wrote and wrote, and I'm, like, about, like, literally 40 pages of script in, which is, like, mostly just dialogue and notes to myself. And then I realized I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like I don't know how long this book is. Like, am I done? Right. Like, is this a hundred pages? Is this like you're you know? Not even pace, you're not even pacing out the pages or like the like the the page turns. As no. Like, a, like you would when you're writing comics. You're like, okay, like what are the what are the ad pages? Like, where's the where are the page turns? Because you'd like to put maybe a little bit of suspense on those. Yeah. You know. In, oh, no, when I'm writing for somebody else. It is literally page one, panel one. It looks yeah. like this, you know, guys in a room, Batman scratching through the window, you know, and, you know, dialogue. Panel two. <laughs> you know, that's what I do right. for, for other people. For me, I, I, I couldn't find myself doing that. Uh, it, it, just, it just seemed like it was uh, not too much work, but um, I didn't know what it was going to look like or how I was going to break it down until I just had to do that. I had to stop writing, print it all out, go back to my drawing board, literally, <laughs> Go back yeah. to the drawing board and actually start laying it all out with word balloons. Yeah, and then I'm guessing the script got fatter as you started to see how many of those panels were action panels or like sequences of jokes, little gags that you'd put in there that could only be done visually. That is and exactly. The forty really turned into fifty or sixty, didn't it? Yeah. No, and it, it, it went back and forth. In some cases, I had like a pile of material that was like I say like ten pages, and then there was like you know. 30 pages became 50, which would be truncated here. Like, okay, that's, that's not enough action. That's too much. You're right. Like that joke plays out with like three panels. And then I kind of want to get that to the next page, but I need to end a chapter there. So mm. 
It was. It was like writing story, going drawing layouts back for a proper mess of, you know, about 200 pages. And it's like, yeah, that's the story. And then editing and chopping it up. But it's great. <laughs> it's the greatest job in the whole world. <laughs> um, I mean, man, I, I live like a tin. No, truly. I make up stories and then I draw them. And I watch reruns of MASH on Netflix. This is my life. <laughs> when I... um. When 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 you write the uh, animated stuff, like you're the head writer on the Awesomes for Seth Meyer, yeah, uh, is is that a Hulu show? Yeah, yeah. When you when you're doing that, do you ever like does the cartoonist come out and you you maybe submit like your your script from like that you wrote up in Final Draft? Do you ever put um, maybe some addendums that you've drawn? Things like oh, here's how that here's how that gag on page four would play out in my mind, or no, is that just think- doing the animator's job and the animators are going to hate you? Like who is this guy? Yeah. yeah, it's well, sometimes you tend to overwrite and that's OK because storyboard artists, I, I know, don't really mind when you kind of overwrite opposed to like mm-hmm. and then a fight breaks out. And they go, thank you there. I got to like I got to like, you know, vamp it for the next, you know, three minutes here. Um, they prefer when you overwrite. So I tend to overwrite it. I think the one thing I would do is now and again, I would, re- I would record voices like I'd mm-hmm. come up with a character and and I would say, you know, just that it's like. Yeah, well, he, I described him and said, and he kind of sounds like this, you know, like I did one character was a was a vil, was a hero called Crotch Puncher, who literally punches people in the crotch. And, it's a weak spot. It's a weak point. Yeah, it's good. And he prided himself on that. And I said he should be Spanish. He should speak slow, and he should be very proud, like very Antonio Banderas. Like they needed more than that. The machismo. But then I had to, like, you know, make a recording of, like, no, no, I'm, I'm crotch puncher. Anyone, anyone can punch someone in the face or chest. But it takes skill to every single time punch someone in the crotch. Hmm. And I had to record that for them. It did wind up sounding pretty much like that, but, you know, probably not based off me. And when you write comics, uh, you don't leave, like, sometimes I leave, like, uh, one or two pages and say, hey, this is what needs to happen by the end of, the, of, of this sequence. We've only got two pages to do it. Go nuts, and I and it's, I always thought of that as like a gift for some of my artists to just be like, right. "Hey, here's my gift to you. You get these two, three pages to just go nuts." <laughs> do you ever do that? Have you ever gotten it's an a- editor to tell you like, "Don't ever tell an artist to just go nuts"? Well, uh, we I, 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 when I write the action comics, I have <laughs> on uh like on Miami Vice, for instance, I I had like I was introducing like the images of the big bad that we were going to get to. Right. And I mainly was like, okay, he's involved in these horrible, horrible, horrible things. And I want you almost to do like a diorama of crime around him, mm-hmm. you know? So like, however you want to depict them doing horrible things, uh, we need some murder. We need some of this. We need some of that. And we need that guy at the center of it. Yeah, that I get. No, yeah. that, that, that's different from like, and then there was a fight scene. Um, no, no, it's got to be, it's got to be like, I know, I know writers who've done that the fight stuff. and by the end of the fight scene, main character's got to be on the ground and uh, other guys got to be on top of them, figure out how, you know what I mean? But, but just have fun and we've only got a page or two to do it. And right. I still, I, I feel like I'm stifling their creativity when I'm like, the director of me comes out and says, high angle down on the cityscape, you know, and plus some of these artists are amazing. And if I'm stifling them in any way, it's. Only a detriment to what we're trying to make. No, I agree. It's about it, well. Also, you got you got to know who you're working with. You know, yeah. I, I, the scripts that I did for superhero comics. The first piece of advice I ever got: it's like a letter that you're writing to an individual. You're mm-hmm. not 
you're, you're, you're addressing the reader, but you're also trying to, this is your first reader, which is the artist who has to, he is your, you're, you know, you might be the writer, but you're kind of jointly directors. He's your casting director. He makes the sets, you know, or she makes the sets. It, they do everything. So it's, it is really about figuring out what kind of relationship you're having with them too. Um, there's been lots of times where it's like, yeah. And now, you know, now comes in this sort of dinosaur type creature. I'm not going to tell them how to draw that, you know, and um, a couple times with, no, often with fights, I give the beats of what we need to happen. You know, like we're going to end here with this, but it, it's always with the, you know, I always preface it by like, if you come up with a better idea about how to do this, by all means do it. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it is about, you know, more than half the time the artist improves upon what you do. You know, you know, you can only see it here, but they can make it happen. So right. I agree. And you also get the dialogue draft that you can kind of go back and enhance, quote unquote, enhance the, if you're not, you know what I mean? If you have time to go back and, and tweak the dialogue to work with the, the new take on the art, yeah. then it always just makes the product better. It's uh, cool. Sometimes it's like, yeah, they need to, like, all right, I'm going to take that out because he needs to shut up. I'm just going to leave the art to do the art. Yeah. Did you miss the collaborative element when you were cartooning this one? Do you, no. do you miss that sometimes? You don't. It's a, it, no, it's a whole different thing. Well, this, this again, this was, um, it was, it was purely because I got to draw again. It's, right. it's, you know, they're totally different animals. Um, sitting at my laptop and, and writing a script um, was, I mean, writing's not fun. I don't, I, I mean, I don't care what no, anybody says. I mean, it's not I, fun at all. Yeah, editing your there's stuff. There's a reward for it. Here. Like, if you're writing a book, I guess there's a reward. But we're writing something that then has to go through several more processes. We don't get the reward. <laughs> no, it takes a while to, like, you know, the book finally comes back and it's drawn and it's done. It's like, like, awesome. You know, that's great. I mean, I won't lie to you. Yesterday, I was sending a box of uh, trades to a buddy of mine. His daughter's finally reading comic books. I'm sending, like, a pile. And off the top was, like, uh, my, green, my first Green Arrow trade, which was Straight Shooter, which, like, 10 years ago. Right. So I started thumbing through it because I really, I had almost no memory of how it started. And uh, I read, like, the first 10 pages. And usually when I read my older stuff, it's like, this is terrible. You know, and that's what you want. You want to, get, you want to be able to say, I got better. But right now, I'm working different muscles. But I had that pleasure of a reader, like, reading my own stuff, not remembering where I went with this, and, and also being able to appreciate it, not as, like, I just got back to do, okay, now it's out and done and gone. This was, like, had a lot of distance now, and you got to sort of look at the work and appreciate it for, you know, for what we did. Um, and that's nice. I mean, that's, that is the best part of, I think, now looking back at collaboration. With this... It allowed me to be a cartoonist again. It allowed me to be kind of like a kid again. And I hadn't been able to do that for a really long time. What's the reception been like? Uh, so far, in uh, humble brag, the reviews have been great. Go for and, it. <laughs> You're allowed to do it. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, to this thing. We, we haven't had a bad review yet. We've, we've got a starred review from Kirkus. Um, you know, it's been uh, pretty much about the... Uh, I mean, many, many sort of personal account reviews from people from on Amazon and whatnot, but from almost all of the publications of people who have reviewed it, they, they love it. And um, a lot of the reaction is the same. Like, when's the next one coming out? It's like, right. which is like the biggest compliment in the whole world. Yeah, how far into it are you? I'm drawing you know book next three. one. You're I'm, on book three already? Yeah, book two's done. Book two You're is done. cruising. Well, we started you a while. Do, you don't want to George R. R. Martin yourself now. <laughs> 
No, we're we're keep. Well, I don't have a lot of choice. We're keeping up a pretty good pace. The, the books will be coming out like six to nine months apart. Okay. Like book two comes out in uh, May of 2016, and then about nine months later will be book three. And by the time book three is out, I'll be finishing well, finishing up book four. Um, it's part of this is that. It's taking all the stuff I've I've done and learned, everything from animated series to doing like superhero comics. Uh, you know, I got a great gift from my editor when I originally was doing this. I wanted to do like twenty of them, you know, keep chugging out one a year. And you know, I saw I saw it like kind of like a like a TV series, more like more like Doctor Who that I want to do twenty of these. Maybe we have the A story, the mystery of who the characters are and why they're here and whatnot. We'll just do a little bit of that and do kind of monster of the week. She was the one who pushed me to like, no, I want to know more about the character like right now. Mm-hmm. And you should you should play to the ending. And that's when I had to sit down and rethink it, go, okay, well, yeah, I think I was kind of thinking like someone who was doing television or someone who was doing comic books, which is, you know, when you do Batman, Batman kind of goes from A to B. He's he's not gonna die or change or do too much. And it's about trying to figure out that little piece of real estate that is Batman and making a new story out of it. This these were characters that, you know, I could do anything with. So I sat down and figured it out. I came back to her and said, okay, we're going to do six of these. It takes six chapters to do these stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm lucky for the first time in my professional life that I'm only doing one thing. Right. <laughs> it's always been, you know, drawing a comic, uh, writing some superhero comics, developing some TV. And for this, uh, because of the pace we're at, um, no, I'm just doing this. That's fun. <laughs> you know, I could totally do it just like this because it's, uh, you know, it is a very good one thing to be doing. And have you been turning things away and some cool opportunities, or, or sometimes do you get the itch to be like, oh, that would be really cool to do, but I have to stay focused? Do you have the ADD that I sometimes struggle against? A little bit, but mm-hmm. it's. I think it's weighed with the fact of, like, right now the book's about to come out. And again, because uh, you know, I'm I'm on like book three. So book one's coming out where we just start. Book two knocks the for- you know story forward. Book three, we're like really into some of the nitty gritty. So I feel very satisfied with what I'm doing. Uh, it's a very particular itch that I'm scratching. Like all ages, you know, you know, graphic novel for you know for everybody. Um, I assume like in a year or two, I'll want to do something with cursing in it at some point, or some grown-up stuff, or some crime. Um, You'll be far enough ahead, yeah. Maybe, and maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I mean, it's, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I assume that uh, you know there, the opportunities constantly come up. You know, right. I had to, I did, I had to step away from the third season of The Awesomes. I was, uh, you know, I was in the in the middle of uh, you know scripting and producing, and the schedule for Hilo got so tough that I had to, I had to tell the guys, I just, I said, I can't do both. Um, and I'm probably not going to be able to come back for the fourth season. Um, I don't know if they've even announced the fourth season yet. I'm assuming they will, and they should, because The Awesomes is a great show. <laughs> um, but stuff like that. Like, you know, The Awesomes is one of the greatest professional experiences I've ever had, and I'm working with, like, really great people who are incredibly funny, and it was a, yeah, it was a pleasure to do. You know, this wasn't, um, it's difficult work, but it was so much fun. You're writing a comedy about superheroes with, you know, great writers and uh, terrific bosses in Seth Meyers and Mike Shoemaker. It's which is great. So right there, right off the top, that's one that I had to had to walk away from. And that's crazy. you know, that's yeah, tough. it was hard. It was really but really. You hard. kept thinking about all that bone gear, and we're like, <laughs> okay, there there is an end. There there's an end goal here that is that is greater <laughs> than where I am now. 
and we yes, are working towards to win it. back the love of my children and get some merchandise on their butts for sure. Let's yes. go. Yeah. Uh, and, and guys, the book does come out September 1st, so it, it will be out. And um, I know that we've been doing Geekscape for, oh my God, goodness, uh, nine years, almost 10 right. years, I think. I've been mm-hmm. doing this something like this. And mm-hmm. some of the Geekscapists have, have gotten kids. Like they, they started out listening to the show or, or watching the stuff uh, before they were even married, and now they have kids. And they, uh, one of them, uh, Big Yanks in New York, he asked if, if you, what you thought of uh, like kind of the, the lack of all-age kid-friendly books from the two big publishers. You know, uh, it seems like they, they sometimes make initiatives to try and make a, a, a Spider-Man or an Avengers or a Batman, you know, book every now and then that'll appeal to young kids. But mm-hmm. it never really seems to stick because the appeal of the bread and butter, you know, and the big universe spanning stuff peels them away from those initiatives. What do you, I mean, when, when you look at the comic industry, is there anything more important to saving it than getting those younger kids to put books in their hands? I agree. I think it, it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you know, for, I mean, you know, you've been, you're, you, you've been reading comics for a long time like I hadn't read them yeah. growing up. And we've seen the, the mainstream press for the long time is like, you know, bam, zip. Comics aren't for kids anymore. It, we spent so long trying to prove that it actually happened. That uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, and I mean that like you know on my on my watch too. I'm totally guilty of that. The comics I read as a kid, which is like you know John Byrne, Fantastic Four, Chris Claremont, X Men, stuff like that. Yeah. I was a child. I was eight, nine, ten years old, and reading those. And nothing was inappropriate about it. It was never too violent. It was never too heady. Um, and not that anything we're doing is too violent, and too heady. But somewhere along the lines, we we just clicked up a couple of notches, and from the 9 and 10 and 11 year old it became a book for teens and for adults and people like us and also we wanted these things that were really really serious and you know and dark you know and those books are amazing and i've done those books but somewhere along the line we forgot that kids read comics and we're not making any i mean it i i had it sitting in right in front of me when my 7 year old son wants to read my batman comics right and i had to tell him no and i had to search around for Okay, so I got some of the Brave and the Bold trades that they did when the series came out. You know, I had to go on eBay and buy the Teen Titans Go manga comics and things like that. Um, it shouldn't be too hard to find comics for kids, especially when he wanted to read Captain America and Hulk and Batman, Superman, and and have a lot. Um, it was one of the reasons why I'm doing this. This is this is pretty much a superhero story in disguise. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's got their everyone's got a uniform or costume. The hero's even got a logo on his chest secret identity it's 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 the whole thing i really wanted to make an action adventure that kids would like that grown-ups would read and not throw up um it was really yeah. important to i wanted to make it like a pixar movie you know sure. yeah. that um so there, there's a lot of action adventure comics which i think really just just are sort of punching down that they really don't they, they're not realizing that you know you could actually make a comic that kids like that adults like just as much um, just as much. And it isn't actually that hard. It's just, you know, you have to sort of get out of, you know, it's not so violent. The stories are not, I wouldn't say complicated, but um, you just don't have as many moving parts. You kind of just focus on, you know, you know, a, a clearer story, you know, like a feature. Films actually yeah. don't have, no, films actually don't have like like nine different subplots. No, they're uh, very good. I mean, if, when they're good, they're intensely economic. I, the Pixar yeah. movies are, are perfect examples of that. Yeah, and lots of heart, and no one looks at those and go like, "Well, it's just a it's just a kiddie film." It's like, really? 
It's like I think all of us gentlemen and and, and not a f- and just a few ladies who saw Toy Story three who like had their hands over their mouths and were oh. keeping at the end of Toy Story three, um, which and Inside know, Out had a couple of those sequences too. I I actually my wife and I had the same reaction when we watched it that the first we went and saw it a second time because we I mean, see no this. spoilers hey no spoilers but no I'll, I'll say this that um, it's. I had a hard time watching the entire thing. It was all it to me. I felt anxious the entire film, you know, and it's without any spoilers. It's just, you know, uh, uh, I think I'm not giving anything away. It's about, it's about a girl coming to terms with her emotions. And it's a parent of children who are um, of this age or coming of this age. I just felt so anxious. Like when they're going to work this crap out, stop messing that up, man. Like, you know, and um, it, that is not, it's not a light film, but then again, it's wall-to-wall jokes. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a funny, funny movie, which also manages to have a lot of heart and also be very dramatic and very serious and sad and funny. So I set the bar pretty high. I was hoping that that's kind of what I wanted to do for a 200-page graphic novel for kids. And with, you know, comparing it back to, to Jeff Smith's Bone, some of that stuff does get kind of dark. In the the king, I mean, I described it to a friend of mine last week by saying, "Hey, it starts out as like a classic Mickey Mouse comic and becomes Lord of the Rings fairly aggressively uh, once yeah. you get past like the Great Cow Race." Uh, and it's nothing to, to make you shy away from it. Bone is uh, one of the top, you know, works of uh, of the medium. Um, are you going to go there with like Hilo? Or are you, I mean, you're already starting to hint at the bad, the big bads, and the right. the darker forces coming in. Is it going to get that expansive and huge and epic? Well, a couple of things. One, um, for Jeff, Jeff was doing a monthly. Yeah. And he never planned on it to be for kids. It just worked out that way. He just wound, it wound up being an all-ages book because of the way it looked and felt, and that's what he liked. Um, so, and, and I think his trajectory was always – I mean, he was always going to go there. That was always the plan is that it was going to get more expansive like that and darker. I think um, – the tone of the book will always be very much of the first one. Like I'm always very, it's very important that we always have jokes. It's always going to be comedy. And even with our most serious stuff, um, we're still going to have jokes. I think it's going to get more dramatic. The mm-hmm. story, as the story progresses, we, you know, learn some things as people read the book. There's seems to be like Hilo as a character seems to have kind of a dark past, which he doesn't remember. That's sort of important. So as we get into it, we're going to learn more and more about that dark past, but the story won't mature. I think if, you know, when the eight-year-old is reading it and then turns nine and 10 and 11 as this book goes on, the new eight-year-old who just read the first one and then rifles through the first four is not going to suddenly feel like, oh, now this is a book for older kids. It's yeah. not going to be that. It's going to stay the course of um, sticking with the same audience. And the story, although um, it'll have, uh, it'll get deeper, you know, it'll still be funny. It'll still feel like that comic strip that is now a graphic novel. Um, I mean, I'm making, it's, it's really important to me that the first book and the sixth book still feel the same way in a lot of tone. Um, but if you read the sixth book coming out of the gate, I assume you're going to be totally lost. <laughs> That's not my, I'm not trying to do six books, which totally stand on their own. Yeah. It's a, it's a serialized story. And if someone says, I'm going to jump in on book three, it's like, I don't think you should. You start at book one, you know, where we start. Right. And I think the the binge viewing nature of our culture now it lends itself to that. Yes, you know, I, I, when when Jeff and those different creators were doing those books that eventually became all age books, we weren't binge viewers. We didn't have access to that, and we 
you know, the closest thing we had were those bookstores, which may or may not have had those in stock. Right. You know? No, and I mean, now it's, it's I, now I, anybody I think, who wants to watch, uh, you know, the, on Hulu, they have, uh, kid shows now and they have how to train your dragon on, uh, Netflix and all this stuff. And you start from the very first one. Yeah. And I, think that, I don't think we're going ever going to go back to the episodes of the week or the no. comic of the month. No, you know? I, I think we, um, it's it's something that we have to acknowledge and remember that like you know like the reader is gonna the reader is gonna be here tomorrow or the reader is gonna like put that one down pick that one up. I mean the way the way books work and especially serialized books, um, you know we'll do books one two and and three and then right out of the gate they'll probably put them in a cardboard box and you can buy all sure. three at once. Um, I know that and I I'm lucky because. Um, Really lucky because all the tools that have led up to this, uh, you know, I did serialized comics for 10 years. I know kind of how that feels. I know what it is to tell a serialized story. I did enough TV that I sort of know, you know, what we're going to give everyone sort of with each book, which will feel like a pretty like a giant episode. Um, and then coupled with, uh, you know, kids animation that I just want to tell a story that, you know, everybody would like and also, you know, looks a certain way, um, you know, art that. Well, I don't have a lot of choice. I can draw one way. I, I draw like a comic strip artist. And I always have. Um, I'm lucky that that's what, you know, uh, kids and grownups like. You know, I know, you know if, if, if some very sort of realistic artist was doing high-low, I don't think it would be as engaging. No. Or <laughs> inviting. Yeah. I, it, are those days over? Do you think, do you think uh, bigger, you know, like the big two combo companies are realizing that the, the fact that their characters are stuck in second acts are now starting to be uh, more difficult to engage new viewers who are part of this binge viewing, start from the first one culture that we're now a part of, and now they're realizing, wait a minute, the first one was decades ago, right. and we're start, trying to keep these people engaged on a monthly basis, and so you start seeing these giant uh, resets of their universes over and over again, and I, and I feel like they, they knew this was happening 30 years ago, Right. Still haven't been able to veer it. Meanwhile, some, you know, the creator owned culture has come out of it and said, we're going to, we're going to just tell these one off stories Mm -hmm. and it can be anywhere from six to 40 to a hundred issues. And, you know, the success of the walking dead and in books like that, Mm -hmm. uh, I think have a lot to lend themselves to the binge viewing nature of, of our television and anything else. Right. Um, so I think your editor was right on making this <laughs> thing six books standalone. And you know what? If the adventure continues, it's the second movie or right. the third movie or a spinoff of a character. And, and you'll actually be able to see and react pretty quickly when the book hits September 1st. Uh, you'll be able to, to be like, oh, they really t- took a liking to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you anticipating that it may shape the last three issues of the book, or the last the last three books in the series? If I someone, don't know. it it might it might be worried about it. Well, I would say, well, yeah, because I mean, right right now, uh, book one's coming out, and I'm I'm working on book three. Book yeah. three's locked, um, you know, and and book four is swirling around my head. Um, I would hope that um, that anything I hear wouldn't necessarily. Uh, uh, change my course. I know how it ends. I know I know how each book plays out, and I have a very clear view and vision of that. It would um, it would be upsetting 
to me if, if I read something that somehow kicked me off my horse. Unless, you know, unless it's it into, yeah, unless some, like something out in the zeitgeist there that people were kicking around like, oh, that's a great idea. I wasn't thinking of going this way, but maybe I can go that way. Um, I can't imagine it would turn me so far from, from the ending that I have in mind. But, um, again, I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to do a beginning, middle, and end. Um, whereas, I think that's, the, 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 I mean, you, you called it out right, the basic problem with a lot of the superhero comics, they've been around for 75 years. I think they'll be around for another 75 years. They'll just keep figuring out ways of reinventing themselves and reinventing themselves. It becomes more competitive when people want that. They want a story that they can have a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, for us grown-ups, we love Breaking Bad because we knew they were playing to an ending. They didn't know yeah. the ending, but we knew that they were playing for keeps. People would die. Things would, things would change. Things would happen. Big moves. Um, I mean, it seems weird that, yeah, Hilo has actually informed for me a lot by something like Breaking Bad, which sure. is don't play around. I, you know, I'm hoping to make some big moves. Things change. Things happen. Um, knowing that when I take, you know, take the characters in a big direction, we can't go back. That's it. We're going in this direction now. Um, but again, I know, I know where, you know, the X marks the spot and we're supposed to, to land this plane. Um, and hopefully, hopefully people will come along with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll wrap up here in a bit, but uh, I had a couple people submitting questions about Batman Under the Red Hood. They just wanted yeah. to really talk about that process because that is dark. And of mm-hmm. course, uh, you know, Pedro and me really is something that I give out as a gift to a lot of people who are like, there's Thank no comics so- for me. I say, Thank you so okay, much. Here's one that's going to stay on your shelf and you're going to read it and you're probably going to pass it on as well. I mean, that, that work was huge. And when it came out, I was still an undergrad in Philly and I totally forgot this until uh, I, I got the email and uh, Hilo in the mail. But, yeah. uh, when I was, I think, a junior or senior in Philadelphia at Penn, I, 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 um, I went to a bookstore, and you were, you were touring for Pedro and me. Yeah. And I was the only non-kid that went to the bookstore. <laughs> and I sat with you and Pam, and I was like, okay, this is a little weird, but um, do no, does nobody else in Philadelphia know, like, Judd Winnick? Like, why am I the only – I was probably there in, like, a Fantastic Four shirt, right? <laughs> right. College kid. <laughs> Sitting in a bookstore in Old Town, Philadelphia, watching you talk about putting this comic together. Because I wanted to be a comic book writer, and I wanted to, you know, do that stuff. And uh, I just remember you taking the time to talk to me. And that was huge. Who are some of those people in your life? And then we'll go back to Red Hood. But I just remember that anecdote. I was like, oh, i got to tell him this story. Because if it wasn't for, like, you and, like, John Arcudi is a Philly native. Like, we, we would, like, yeah. go and get lunch and stuff like that. Like, if it wasn't for you guys, then I wouldn't be doing what you guys are watching right now. I wouldn't be writing comics or working in film and TV. So, like, who are some of those people in your life? Because there are always bumps in the road as a creative. Well, let's start by thank you. That just pretty much <laughs> my point. Okay, so you were just going to blow past that one. Uh, but so, so 15 years ago, I was at a bookstore in Philly, and you came yeah. on in. That's amazing. It was well, crazy. You're welcome. Well, you're welcome. That was that that is great. I mean, and for it to happen around around Pedro, I mean, you know, is is that much more important? I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever do anything as as important as that. I mean, I'm 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 going to do books my whole life. I'm going to do stories right. my whole life, and they're all going to be great. But um, I don't think I'll ever do anything as important as that. And I'm glad I was able to talk to you. I'm glad I was able to uh, to, to help you out a little bit. You might. Uh, 
I mean, you have relationships in your life now. You're as a father, as a husband that that could lend themselves to that sort of need to sh- like get the insight into a place where you could. I mean, as somebody who starts to write things personally myself, that is away from like the bombastic, fun mm-hmm. stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I think as creators, we we sometimes really need to use our art to quantify things or to at least. I don't know, be able to hold them and process them. It's all process. And I think that there's, there, there are still opportunities for you to process something on that, you know. Well, I would go. It might come right after this one. Maybe. I would almost hope not. Because it, well, it, it, it came out of, it's, it's a memoir. It, so, it can be a celebration. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, I'll put it this way. That, that Hilo is a work of pure fiction um, is that. Because as I was told a long time ago, um, one of my mentors, Linda Zeminski, who I'll tell the story about in a minute, um, told me a long time ago, a long time ago, um, she said, well, when you have kids, your perspective will change. You'll want to make things for them. And uh, I had always felt like I'm a big kid now. I got toys all over the place. I read comic books. I don't have a real job. You know, know, it's like I'm not going to need children to, you know, put me on the path of wanting to tell children's stories. I mean, I was doing an animated series for kids before my son was born. So it's like, nah, it's not going to be there. But when I had kids, um, making things for them uh, really became important because it was just so much fun. You know, and I finally uh, had the instant gratification that I never had before. I mean, I had this amazing experience. My, my, my wife was on a sabbatical and we spent two and a half months in New Zealand last summer which is the winter in New Zealand. So we spent a winter in New Zealand with our kids. And while I was there, I spent the first month and change writing um, the second Hilo book. And my first readers were, of course, my wife and kids. And um, so it was the rough 8.5 by 11 like copy paper version, which I gave to my kids. And, um, and they flipped out. They loved it so much. And it became their own little catchphrases. And they were performing scenes from the book. You know, and my daughter was pretending that she was this new character. And, oh, my God. You know, it's like, oh, my God. It was just this. I was I was really, really conscious of the fact of like, okay, I get it now. I really, really get it now. Because it's, it's, it's one thing. Um, you do a story, you put it out there, and people love it. Uh, and it's great. It's another thing when, um, you know, your own kids, like, flip out for it. I, I can't. I can't put any. You know, they're the best audience in the world because they're honestly on a regular basis. Someone, you know, they're the people who I kind of want to impress. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it's something just just about being a parent, being a dad, them being my my blood, I guess. Um, yeah. And I love it. There's no bigger fans in the world than my two children, and it's amazing. Um, so, I I think this this this. I guess what I'm saying is this odd progression of doing this incredibly personal story that was Pedro. Now I'm still doing this incredibly personal story, which is a work of fiction, you know, right. about this action adventure, which is, uh, you know, about these kids. But it's for my kids. So, again, it becomes, becomes personal. Um, mm-hmm. It's just as therapeutic as what you're saying. Yeah. In, in, a different, in a different way. In a totally different way. In a yeah. totally different way. But it's uh, still therapy. Yeah. It just, it feels great. They ask about it. They talk about it. They, they you know, we had to have a spoiler lecture. Because they they know what's going on with book right. They're they're inside the house, and we I I actually said, come here, come here and sit down. We're going to talk about this. So they're, they're called spoilers. The entire internet. 
Thrones Sundays. Okay, so here's the thing, everybody. Sit down. Real thing. <laughs> now, you're going to find out things that other people don't know. And they're going to know. Is a way that we can arrange that? Hey, Skype, can we start a new series called <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler Sit-Downs? <laughs> can we work on that for the entire internet? <laughs> Please? Just because you know things doesn't mean you have to tell everybody. And the when your friends ask... Let's not, let's be careful here, people. Not a bad idea. <laughs> well, yeah, there was, that was the start of it. I actually had to tell them what not there. They could like spoil things in book three and I can't tell them the ending. Right. They're asking like, what happens next? I can't tell you. No. It's like, like, like why? It's like, no, I just one, I don't want to ruin the ending. I want you guys to, yeah. to be able to read it. But, and I tell them like, I can't trust you guys not to talk about it. <laughs> I heard, I mean, something I, I live, you know, I, I don't, I don't let my wife read my scripts because I want to shoot them. Right. And I'm like, if you know, you have to you have to sit and watch it. Right. Um, but I also heard like uh, Warren Beatty say that telling people your stories is a great excuse not to ever make them. Mm. You know, because we're storytellers, and once the story is told a little bit, the the reasons for telling it go away every bit. It's it's almost like the reverse of the cultures that think when you take a photo of them, you steal a little bit of their soul. Right. When you when you let it out a little bit, your reason for letting it out in the grand scheme is gone. So something that's helped me as a writer uh, is keeping it in, which sometimes just becomes demonic possession for a while. Like, cause you're, <laughs> you're like, I need an outlet. I need to get them out. And writing becomes exorcism. And then you come in the door at the end of the day. And because you've been tapping at a keyboard or writing a notepad, the look of exhaustion is almost not understandable to other people. Yeah. But it is exhausting. And they're like, wait, you haven't been laying brick. You've been on your computer all day. <laughs> Does Pam understand just, that stuff? Oh, like, like, okay. Two, two major schools of thought there. One, I never actually heard the Warren Beatty quote, but, and, and God, that is so true for me. Yeah. I, I've, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are storytellers on, on every shape and form. And, and I heard it recently. So it was like an epiphany, like, oh, that's why I need to shut up. Well, yeah, some, I, yeah. I think some people, most, some people go the other way. And most people go the advice they give is you got to talk it out. You got to talk out your story. You got to, but if your story uh, gets too you gotta, big, you're, you're hearing you know. all sorts of garbage. Yeah. No, sometimes, I mean, I, I tend to think that, like, no, listen, I'll give you some of the, uh, maybe I can give you the big beats. Or things but, you need to work out, sure. Yeah, no, or even like, hey, I'm thinking about this part and like, you know, like things like that. But I also feel that sometimes when I kind of give up the store, when I, you know, try and tell the whole thing before when like really getting it down, some, something's going on. I, I truly, like I, um, I, couple of months ago, I was telling my editor what was going to go on in book four. And I felt myself as a saying it like, no, I'm going to hold that back. No, I'm not going to tell her that part. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to keep it broader. I'm not going to tell her that. And literally, like, yeah, and then something happens at the ending. I, won't, I don't want to tell you. Because <laughs> it's uh, – we know what we see in our heads and, like, right. how for all of our ego, how grand and beautiful it's going to be when it's actually out there. <laughs> you know, so, I was just going to say – I was just going to say how sincere it was or, like, how <laughs> it's intended. It's well, sincere. I'm, it's like, I, okay, I, I got to deliver it sincerely. Yeah. Brand, I don't know if I'm capable of that one. I'm I'm Jewish and self-deprecating, and anytime I get too <laughs> up, it's like it's like no, nah, shut up, asshole. Um, no, it's, it, I think you know you're absolutely right. Like, there's a way of like just saying the words out loud, like well, and then and then so and so dies. It's like, 
they're not going to get it until they see it, man, until they see the ramp up and what happened, what was given up, and when this character actually dies. And the way, you know, I'm not going to tell some people like that scene because it's it's all about how we're going to do it and you're going to see it. Right. So I get that 100% that sometimes it has to stay inside. And I totally forgot your second great point there, which was the second school of thought. Second school of thought is talking it out. I think you talked about it. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I don't. Yeah, some things I need to talk out. Other things, other things I don't. I mean, some for, the, for the storytellers and writers watching, like I think you just have to be strategic with it because, um, I don't know if I ever want to tell it to the people who it's for. You know, because yeah. that needs to be the end product. The people mm-hmm. it's who it's for. Like, my father will never read that script. He will hopefully see the festival premiere. Like, my wife will never read that script. She will see the pre- festival premiere. But my fellow writers, who literally I can count on one hand, who I, are in the circle, they'll read it. Mm-hmm. Um, because they get they get the process of putting those things to life. And I need their insight on those processes. You know, I got I got burned early on. Not really burned. I learned my lesson when 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 my son had first asked about you know can I can I do an all ages book? The first crack I took at it was uh, kind of a half assed approach. It was it was a, a one shot story that I had in my mind for a while, which I'm still going to do. Which um, I basically did like the first like 25 pages. Um, I did it kind of an odd fashion that it was a little bit of a hybrid book. Um, and uh, and then wrote a full outline, and then I sent it out to people, and people liked it, but they just wanted to see more. And right. I mean, knew full well that I was trying to get away with it. I was trying to get away with someone buying the book without actually doing the book, without really investing. Yeah, rolling up the sleeves. Yeah, sitting down, doing the hard work. And when I came up with Hilo, it was like. No, I'm going to go do it. And that when I was done, I had 200 pages of 11 by 17 board, you know, penciled, lettered, you know, just in pencil. I didn't ink it. Done. That's crazy. And well, that's, I knew that's like, I know, only- but it's necessary. Right. For people to actually see what I was going to do, it's just what you're talking about. I couldn't tell the story to people. I couldn't give them in half measures. It had to be written and drawn in the way that I could envision the book actually being done. And, you know, lo and behold, we, uh, you know, we had 14 offers, you know, everybody want, yeah, I mean, we sent it out to 14 publishers and got like, you know, like 13 yeses. Um, yeah. and you know, those magic words of, of, you know, bidding war, um, humble brag. Um, Do it. I, I, I get, I guess my point of it was that when I actually, when I really, you know, put the time and did, did, um, that's when it actually happened. You know, that's when people read the story and got it and wanted to do it, you know, very much so. It's very heartening, considering that it was just it was just done on spec. And while we're doing spoiler sit down, I think we got to address this humble brag thing. If you're actually putting in an intense amount of work, <laughs> just asking brag, just brag, brag, just brag, sure. brag it up. Fair enough. Just brag. Bragging. Okay. Because I agree. <laughs> like any any humility is earned. Like just go, run, <laughs> do it. Like you did all the work, and then you sent it out. 14 people, want, 14 people saw it, 13 people wanted it, and I want to know what that one person is going to feel like on September 1st when this thing comes out. Well, you know what? You give me three things today, if at, at least. One, that great Warren Beatty quote. Two, yeah. ditch the humble brag thing. And three, this wonderful story how I spoke to you 15 years ago. So, oh, thank you. incredible. For- uh, who are those people that did that for you, who took the time? Because 
you know, you know, the story on uh, is that you always wanted to be a cartoonist. Uh, when you were at school, you, uh, you yeah. know, did the cartoon for the newspaper. You had a, a deal to maybe make it syndicated in newspapers, and it didn't work out. You found yourself back home, mm-hmm. having to reassess your life and your goals. That's a really hard place to get out of, and a lot of people don't get out of that. A lot of people aim for it. They say, this is a dream. They go for it. They gun for it. And when they hit that first bump, and sometimes the bumps can be significant, but when they hit that first bump and they have to fall back and kind of reassess, Mm -hmm. then the safety stuff comes out and they say, yeah, that's someone else's life, but you only get one shot at this. Like it's hard to climb out of that hole. Uh, What were the things for you besides like, being cast on real world San Francisco and stuff like that, like there had to be other th- callings. Like there had to be other yeah. things that said that led you to that path. It well, wasn't let's, TV. let's start with exactly what you're talking about. The something to fall back on. Um, my mom and dad who were amazing. If you know, what were their jobs as when, when my brother and I were kids was raising us. Um, uh, I mean, I swear if I would like, you go back to 13 year old me and you ask like, what does your dad do for a living? It's like, he's an insurance broker. What does that mean? It's like, I have no idea. I know that my dad, you know, coaches soccer and, you know, and, and goes to all my plays and has always been excited about everything that um, I wrote and drew. My mom was right there, too. My folks never pushed me to do the thing to fall back on. I wanted right. to be a cartoonist since I was born, and they always were going to allow me to do that. I mean, my, my dad's vision was always like, well, if cartooning doesn't work out, you can always fall back on acting. So like this was this this is where yeah. his head is at yeah. you know like you know one one pie in the sky career for another one. There's so, always this other lotto ticket that you can scratch if that lotto ticket doesn't yeah. work. Out. I know they were insane. They were insane. I mean, when I was I guess when I was like like 17 or something, and and uh, my SAT scores were like average at best. I'd even said like I'm going to art school. My SAT scores don't need to be good. I didn't know if that was true or not. Right. <laughs> but you know it worked out because. They had a lot of faith in me, and that was important. And they weren't saying, like, that's all fine. Go get an accounting degree, whatever. They, they, it, was, it was always, you're good at this, go ahead and do this. So it began with my mom and dad. But along the way, um, starting in college, um, here's a name you're not going to believe. So there was a mentor program they had at University of Michigan, which was just that. Are there any alumni? And there's a lot of alumni at U of M um, who you'd like to reach out to. And I said, Yeah. Kathy Geiswhite, syndicated cartoonist Kathy Geiswhite, she went here. So uh, I'd like to talk to her. <laughs> and they it. sent Kathy a letter, and they sent me back a phone number, and I called Kathy. Um, so Kathy Geiswhite, um, I spoke with her, and we spoke for a really long time about cartooning and being a professional. Then I sent her my college strip. She said, this is great. I want to give it to my syndication, you know, Universal Press Syndicate, yeah. which is the biggest syndicate in the, the whole world. And she did. And they gave me a development deal. Wow. Kathy was instrumental in getting me going as a pro, and she gave me a lot of faith because she didn't have to do anything. She, no. You know, no, I mean, she could have actually said, I don't think it's good enough, go back to work. you know. But she liked the strip, gave me some notes, picked out the ones I should send in, and then hand-delivered it to Lee Salem, the head of Universal Press Syndicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got a development deal. And she was my third phone call when they dropped me. And no yeah, one was well. mad at her. No one was angrier than her. She was just so disappointed. Um, 
but we kept in touch for years after that, you know. Uh, Joe, were there, were there, was there a moment before you made that phone call where you, because I think people do that, where where it's like, uh, I can't call her, there's nothing, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think you and, my, and I may be wired like that, but I worry that there might be people who have that opportunity, which may turn into a golden ticket, but the fear of rejection or failure keeps them from even dialing those numbers. Was there yeah. a moment where you had to get over that little thing? I think we all have to get over it. Mm-hmm. But what I tell people is worst thing that's going to happen is the thing that happens if you don't call. So you might as well call. Yeah. <laughs> right. Was there a moment where you were like, what would she possibly see in me? But I, I got this far. I might as well. Like, what was that about? I was never that kid. And I mean, yeah. kid. you know, I was I, I guess like, you know, I was 21, 22. So the hunger um, was starting to set in. The, what the hell am I going to do next was starting to set in. Kind of, well, no, I was I was so full of it. I was so full of myself, and um, I really, really was. And again, like for good or for bad, my parents raised me to be really full of myself. Um, that I thought a lot of what I did, I had a lot of confidence. Most of it misplaced. I mean, really, most of it misplaced. But I always felt pretty strong about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And when I would, I would talk to people who were kind of struggling cartoonists or doing this and that and saying like, oh, syndication is like, that's like Major League Baseball that, you know, people never get into it. I mean, it's like you got a better, you have a better chance of being a Major League Baseball player than getting a syndicated comic strip. And I remember thinking at like 18 years old, like, yeah, for you, but it's like, yeah. but I'm, but I'm a Major League Baseball player. Because again, my, I was always told that I was always told that, you know, that I was good and that I, you know, I was funny. I was going to be able to do this. Um, and I had enough success as a child that as I was growing into a man, I was still hanging on to that. I think people get it beaten out of them. The thing that I say to people who give me that is yeah. someone's doing that job. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, someone's going to do someone's doing that job. Yeah. And they're going to end up with dirt on top of them just like you. So <laughs> you might as well try and be the person who does that job. Right. Right. Yeah. We all end up with the same gifts. Good, same goodbye gift. <laughs> it tastes like dirt. It feels like dirt, and it's a lot of dirt. So yeah. you might as well go for it. Yeah, and the going for it is like it is such small potatoes. It is those things like, yeah, look, you know, comb your hair and go have this meeting with this guy who might not want to talk to you. Go pick up the phone and call this woman who might be rude to you. And I, yeah. there was somebody else I won't mention who I called who is not a syndicated cartoonist, but someone who is also. Um, sort of in a, in a similar vein who I called who was just okay. Who kind yeah. of said, well, like, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I said, well, I, I would love for you to take a look at my stuff. Like, okay, yeah, well, you can send it. I don't know what I can do. It's like, oh, oh okay. And I'm thinking, like, and, and that one was like, I'm not going to send this person this stuff because no. I, I, I can tell already. Um, yeah, like, listen, I'm not going to spend the one hour, you know, in hindsight, I almost was like, no, send it to him. It only takes an hour. But I, you, you get that vibe off people, too, and, and you learn from it. You learn from yeah. it. I mean, you know, with Kathy, she was immediately inviting. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't like I was the first person ever to reach out to her, like, hey, can you help me get syndicated? But, um, you know, I guess, you know, even though we're just talking on the phone, I was I was polite. I chewed with my mouth closed. And, uh, you know, um and when I sent her the work, she liked the comic strip, which was the most important thing. Um, and she was, you know, she was a mentor and friend for, for, for a while. And again, when I got 
when I got dropped, there was no one who was more disappointed. And then excited when, like, hey, I'm going to go on this reality TV show. <laughs> it's like, what? really? It's like, yeah. She said, she said, can't hurt. <laughs> and, and, like, Absolutely can't hurt. That span of months, what was going through your mind? I don't um, know how long it was, a year, two years? Like, what was going through your mind when, when you were on your keister a little bit? I was still hitting the pavement. I was still working yeah. out there. Um, yeah. in that in that time I met so, I met someone else who would be instrumental. Um it, a very long story short, um I had uh I had a former relative who was an executive uh, a relative a, a relative through marriage who was then divorced but still a friend of the family who was an executive at Viacom. Perfect. And um he was good enough to send uh my book uh over to Nickelodeon. Me uh my it was a collection of my college comic strip. And sent it over to Nickelodeon. So as the story goes, uh, the head of animation development was a woman named Linda Semensky. And Linda called me because she, uh, she liked the book. Actually, what she told me said, oh, because I read your comic strip book. I like it a lot. I go, thank you. She goes, no, let me explain. I don't like a lot of stuff. And it started with when I get things to read, like, said, so this executive like, sends it down, so I have to pay attention. So I gave it to my readers who are these really crabby art students from School of Visual Arts here in New York, and they hate everything. Yeah. And they hate everything. So I give it to them first. And they came back and said, no, we actually like this. I said, well, i got to read this. She said, so you got past the hate wall and over to <laughs> me. And uh, she said, I really like this. Like, have you ever thought about doing an animated series? So in about the like year between getting dropped from uh, my syndication contract and getting on The Real World, I was developing uh, a show for Nickelodeon which nothing ever happened of it. And that was another one like, thank God, because I really didn't know what I was doing at all. But I, you know, I had no problem. You had to swim. You you know what I mean? Like, you had to learn to swim. I think that that happens where people are like, yeah, you you can't, you have to create your own career. You have to kind of shape your own career. You You can't, you can't follow a path. You can ask for that help. You can ask for the sponsorship. But if you're not working when you're when you're not working, yeah, then you're not going to be working when you are working. Does that make sense? It sounds totally. like the worst IQ ever. But like, if the days that you're not working, you are literally not working. That's going to be your days forever. Yeah, you will always work for other people. Yeah, if you I do agree. work when no one's paying you for it, you're going to create your own career. Yeah, that's pretty much all I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only I've only worked in an office like. A handful of times, it's usually been sort of in the vein of doing the work that I do. It has mostly well, it's been crazy. It's, it's been me in a room crazy. making things up. You know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate in that way. Um, you, you know, and um, it is about you just got to take that leap. You know, the uh, jump for the net will be there. Um, that is um, an expression I heard like a decade ago. It's like, yeah, I kind of always done that. Again, I was I've been given I was given the false confidence that the net would always be there. And a lot of times it wasn't. Right. Um, but, but another net was there. Or a rope, yeah, like no, something I, was there. You figured it I out. I got a deal and then I lost it. I had a sure. show development at Nickelodeon and the show didn't go. And then I got around reality TV. And, uh, and that was great and all. But when it was done, it wasn't like the work stopped. Like a whole crap ton of people knew who I was. Um, and what it did, our director told me way ahead of time um, when uh, the show was about to come out. He said, this will open doors for you, but you still have to be able to walk through them. Mm-hmm. So you need to be prepared for that. And um, 
he was right. There was there was a lot there was a lot of people that I met, you know, um, who I could work with. You know, I had to, I had to still be the cartoonist I was to actually get the work done. Um, right. It provided opportunity. You know, when when opportunity and inspiration meet. Um, so the real world provided um, some of that. You know, there was a lot of it was like, okay, now a lot of people know who I am, and I am I am not exactly making rent. Uh, <laughs> you know, those first you know couple of years after the show. Sure. Um, I no, got so, a wife out of it. I got a girlfriend. Yeah. Got a girlfriend oh, no, out of it. No, no, no. Everything was was always you know like like great after the show in the sense that I, you know, Pam and I started dating three months after the show, Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm lecturing around the country and then I got a job doing, you know, some illustration work, which was great. Then I did get syndicated. Um, and then I hunkered down, I did the Pedro me book, but, um, along the way, as you said, there's always been people. I mean, uh, Kathy Geisler was one. Linda Semensky was another. Linda Semensky left PBS and went to a small network called the cartoon network. Isn't that crazy? And it was crazy. And then I then as Linda and I were talking, she said, Well, when are you gonna do another show for me? Like, do you want one? <laughs> and yeah. uh Pam and I actually sat down for a few months, started thinking about the kind of show we wanted to do. And then uh and you know, then gave it over to Linda and she said, Great. And that's how I got a show on on Cartoon Network. Um and hell, I started writing superhero comics because of the real world and the fact that Kevin Smith didn't know who I was. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Wait for it. So, this is uh, like 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. Uh, Kevin Smith's at the San Diego Comic Con. This is when it was still just a gigantic comic convention sure. and not the, you know, the, the it's mega like comic. Yeah, uh, it's like the Artist Alley at New York Comic Con, which I love. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it like, it was away gigantic. from all that stuff, it's just comic creators, like, actually hanging out. Yeah. No, and it was, it was still, it was the biggest comic convention in the world, still, mm-hmm. um, but not, not what it is now. Kevin yeah. Smith had just begun, like he did. Uh, he did Clerks, and he had just finished Chasing Amy, and he was hooking up with Oni Press, and yeah. there were some Clerks comics with Jim Mahfood and Matt Wagner, and um, I was gonna, I was waiting online to buy the uh, Clerks uh, and Chasing Amy script book, which they bound together in I one box. And uh, I was going to do this thing, which I was doing often at that time, which was I would introduce myself to someone who I admired. They would recognize me, and then I'd have an actual interaction. And in some cases, we'd become friends. So I'm thinking, like, there's no way Kevin Smith hasn't seen the real world. Pop culture dude hasn't seen real world three. So this is going to be great. It's going to be fun. Wait online like everyone else. Ham the book, making lots of eye contact. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm Judd. He goes, great. Who, should I make this out to Judd? Who should I make it out to? I said, um... Can you make it out to Judd and Pam? I go, he'll get it now. So he just signed it to yeah. Judd and Pam. Just keep adding the... cast members until it clicks. I was hoping, you know, it's <laughs> like something, you know, starting to do dialogue, you know, a little song, dance, a little seltzer down the pants. You just sign the book to Judd and Pam. Who gets the book in case you break up? Best Kevin Smith. And like, oh, okay, so that didn't happen. And I step offline and I see someone is staring at me. And... It, the person staring at me, I recognized, like, I think that's Bob Shrek. Bob oh. Shrek was a big shot editor at Dark Horse yeah. Comics, man behind Sin City, and, and you know, um, Frank Miller's editor on many, many, many books, um, and Hellboy and whatnot. Um, so I recognized him because I'm a big nerd, and he's looking at me, and I go, it's like, are you Bob Shrek? He goes, yeah, you're Judd, right? I go, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> Evan's witnessing this entire exchange. He's moved on. He's got a line 500 deep. He's got things to do. 
I'm over here yeah. having a seminal moment in my life, which is meeting Bob Shrek. Yeah. So Bob and I started shooting the shit, and uh, then we grabbed lunch, and I was telling him what I was up to, and he was telling me about Oni Press. He left Dark Horse. He started his own comic company, yeah. and uh, said, like, would you want to do anything? It's like, do you do, like, comics? Like, no, I do strips. He goes, well, on the inside cover of Oni Double Feature, we're doing, like, one-pagers. Can you do, like, a one-page strip? It's like, yeah, sure. It'd be great. Um, and that was my first comic book work. And That's then, awesome. uh, yeah, Bob was great. And I, and when I, I gave him a copy of Pedro and me when I'd started doing it. So he was one of my first readers, um, and loved it. And with that, it then nudged me like, you should just do a story, like do a fictional story. I did a story called road trip, which was for Oni. Um, you I know, remember it? yeah, it was, it was, and that was like, that was my first piece of fiction in a real way. Um, those Kevin Smith, Jim Moffat books were the first books that I remember buying from Oni where those, yeah, they were the very ones. first ones. And they were they great. Were the best ones. Yeah. yeah, they were fun and filthy, and you know, and they were clerks as comics. They were great. Um, and it was a, it was a good crew to be with. They were like they were still indie comic guys, and it was it was mm-hmm. it was a good place to learn. And Bob was a great editor. Bob was a really really great editor. He's he is both unbelievably hands off and then very like laser quick to but that <laughs> sure. Like, sure that that right there. What do you think of that? Like a therapist. And it's like, well, and it's like, yeah, maybe you want to take another whack at that. You know, it's, you need know. to work through this one. Yeah, just and like, like, you know, like what? Like just less, and and you come back and like, like that, like, like that, you know, and like the story's better. He would always do that. So jump ahead, like Linda starting at um, Nickelodeon, and then going to Cartoon Networks. Then Bob Shrek's working at DC Comics. Yeah. And um, about six months in, he calls me and said. So why haven't you bugged me about a superhero comic? <laughs> and it's like, what do you mean? It's like, everybody else wants to write a superhero comic. I don't hear from you. What do you want to do? It's like, well, Bob, I want to write a superhero comic, but I don't want to bother you. Um, I mean, we had never had this conversation. It's like, so you know superhero books? Like, man, I grew up. That was almost your books. not like, made you know, phone call. This is, that, right? this is the thing I want to do. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, that's you almost know? your not phone call. No, Bob called me. Yeah. Bob called me to be social and just to sort of check in and, you know, and, and like, so what, and, and for me, that one was, I was doing, I was, I was doing uh, my comic strip. I was working on the adventures of Barry Ween, um, you know, and some other like you aggressively, you'd kind of not been aggressively shaking the trees that much anymore. Well, this one, yeah. this, this was a leap and this is why I owe almost everything to Bob. Cause this was, this was like the biggest leap I made from before this. I'm, I'm a cartoonist, you know, sure. uh, full on. And Bob gave me the nudge, like, well, you know, do you think you could write a superhero comic? Because, by the way, cause I think you can. Um, he said, yeah, I think, you know, well, I'll, let me send you a few scripts, read them, and, um, you know, you think about it for a couple of days. And uh, I came back and said, so I said, yeah, I can, I can totally do this. Not really knowing if I can or I can. That's the, you know, leap for the net will be there. Um, so, again, this is, uh, this is, you know, um, 16 years ago. Um, and um, I started doing scripts first, like in longhand, and then copying them over. I mean, it was just, it was, it was, just a, it was a mess. And uh, uh, again, Bob Laser Quick helped me like figure a few things out. But uh, before I do it, I'm writing Green Lantern. Yeah. You know, I learned by doing. And uh, in some of those early books, you can sort of see that I'm learning by doing. But um, after that, you know, there was a decade of superhero comics, all because Bob, you know, wouldn't know why I wasn't bugging him, and because he put me on Green Lantern and then Green Arrow and then Batman. You know, yeah. He was my editor of all those books. And the Red Hood stuff is what everybody loves. I mean, 
uh, I read the Green Lantern stuff and like the whole fridging episode and all that stuff was, uh, you know, it, it felt, it, you know, to say things because you were always introducing a little bit of controversy and like real world issues, but it never felt like it didn't dovetail with the story. And sometimes you see that stuff and it just feels like an edict. Like, yeah. well, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to change the sex of this character or we're going to introduce this topical uh, controversy mm-hmm. and, uh, and credit to the fact that you could, you used to do that stuff in your superhero book, knowing that there'd be uh, a big microscope on it and you would just kind of segue it in with the characters, just make it work. Because uh, the other way around just feels like an interruption or a betrayal of trust to the readers. I would hope so. I mean, again, I, I, I was hoping not to do, um, as we joked, uh, a very special episode of Blossom or things coming off like an after-school sure. special, anything like that. Um, that was the big thing. Don't make it feel like an after-school special. I think some of those I, some of those I don't go back and read because I think they probably would play like an after-school special because, for me, um, something you that – You were pop- learning that less is more a little bit? A little bit. Well, yeah. I mean, in some of those I would have done – Things like instead of this going over two issues, we should do five. Sure. But in hindsight, um, knowing full well that, like, you know what, this this isn't this this storyline. Um, all it's actually going to need is these two issues, um, and I shouldn't feel the need to expand upon it uh, just for my own comfort. <laughs> that I feel like I'm rushing the characters through something. We always got so much heat, good and bad. We always got mainstream right. press, which always would piss off the main the uh, you know the regular readers. And sure. um, this is at the birth of the internet. Haters. We didn't call them haters back then. They were just or trolls. They were just the guys from the message boards who just hate me. Um, but I always had a really good editor. I always had really good backing of uh, Paul Levitz at DC Comics. Was was always 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 on the front lines and supportive of anything we want to do, whether it was introducing characters of color or. Uh, you know, or, or or gay characters, or we did a hate crime issue in Green Lantern, which was, you know, to say it was controversial would be an understatement. It was a very big deal at the time. Um, and, uh, again, I was lucky. I had a really good editor and also a really good opportunity and great people to tell these stories. And they were important to me. Uh, right. so in superhero comics, we have people of all shapes and sizes. And I mean, that literally. They're, they're blue, they're green, they're squatty, they have four arms, they're missing eyes. You know, they're mutants, this and that. So I never found it like, like guys, among this, you know, world that we create, is it so hard to have, like, you know, a couple of black people and maybe a gay guy here and there? You know, it's like yeah. we shouldn't flip out about it. Um, and I think we would always run into comic fans not wanting us to mess with canon coupled with, um, you know, stereotyping and homophobia. Um, sure. Whole thing. And the birth sure. of the angry internet. That's how Kevin, Kevin uh, we were Kevin Smith's first podcast because I had misquoted a Wizard Magazine quote of his. Yeah. And he wrote me an email and was like, Jonathan, I didn't say that. I want to come on your, on your podcast. And I wrote back and was like, you're not Kevin Smith. And he, <laughs> he proved it by posting on the old VOSQ forums. Hey, Jonathan, it's me. He emailed me back a link to the post. I was like, it's me. When am I coming on? Like, yeah. uh, how's next week look for you? <laughs> Geekscape was born. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, well, uh, that's awesome. Red Hood. We can wrap up with that before we say a little bit more about Hilo. But um, 
that's just what people want you to talk about a little bit because <laughs> they because they love you know what the DC animated movies are people love them more sometimes than the live action DC movies right and right. that was one that everybody was like have them talk about under the red hood I'm happy to talk about it I love it so much I do I I'm st- my my son is literally about a year away from when I'm going to let him watch it there's a lot of guns and people's heads blowing up and crowbarring literally yeah. So, so I, I, I want to hold up that I'm um, starting with, um, I, years ago when, um, Dan DiDio, uh, wanted me to take over, uh, Batman, I did a, I did like a fill-in arc and he said, I think I want you, I, I'd really like you to do a run. Did you have anything in mind? And I said, yeah, I had this, I had this idea about bringing Jason Todd back. He goes, great, great. He said, that'll, oh. <laughs> that'll yeah. make people crazy. Like, you know, and I explained to him, like, you know, it was based off this idea that, you know, and hush spoilers at the end uh hush is revealed and, and jason todd really you know and i thought it was amazing jason todd is hush oh my god like and i saw the whole story it's like a hundred miles of broken road oh man his greatest failures come back to life and using all the tools he gave him it's gonna be great and the next issue they reveal it's actually clayface and it's like wasn't jason todd I go, oh okay so they're not gonna do that that would have been cool so when it was my turn at bat, which was like six months later, I said, no, no, I want it, I want it to be Jason Todd. Like, let's, let's bring him back. And I told uh, over, over breakfast in San Diego, I told Dan DiDio what I had in mind for the ending. And I, I said, there's going to be all this kind of stuff. You know, he's going to become this crime lord. He wants, he's going to become the better Batman. Like, he's like, he's, a, he's an antihero. But in the end, it comes down to, like, Jason's going to get Joker. And he's going to have Batman there. He's going to have Joker tied up. And I said, and his point to Batman was that not that you let me die, but that you didn't kill him. And Dan like says, do it. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's pretty awesome. Ahead, I said, I said, yeah, I guess you land there. Nothing else matters. Go ahead. Go ahead and do it. And um, again, my editor, Bob Shrek, gave me just, you know, lots of room. And I had so much fun doing that. It was fun writing Black Mask, you know, sort of find that character and make him funny, which I didn't know he was until I started writing him. It's like, I think he's funny. I think he's like a yeah. funny guy. I think he's like really like, you know, kind of like one of those ridiculous gangsters. And then also that J- Jason's crazy kind of like, character. Yeah, you know, yeah. He's like, his head's a freaking black skull. Yeah. So that's, you know. Go with should, it. Yeah. And that Jason is sort of mean and snarky like 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 an evil Peter Peter Parker. I mean, these are just things I just found. And also just the relationship between Bruce and uh and Jason. Mm-hmm. You know, the father and son thing that you know, that Jason, in, in a way, for me, like, Jason, in a way, is, is closer to who Bruce is. It's just things happened. Um, and knowing where it was going to end, that, like, Jason is basically taking revenge by courting his broken heart. Like, and that's all about. So we did the comics. It was, like, two years' worth of comics, which was great. Then not long after the Dark Knight movie came out and knocked us all firmly on our butts as, like, this was just unreal. Um, I knew that uh, that Warner Animation wanted to do another Batman movie, and, you know, we're looking for ideas, and I said, man, I love Red Hood so much. I really do. I still love the story. It's like, we should do that as a movie. I can, like, I can make break it down to this, and we should make it as a movie, just the beginning, middle, and end. And um, the, I think the... Uh, 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 the best part was when I was pitching it to them. Um, the the biggest concern they has like, well, we can't do this because we can't get to uh, you know, we don't have the lead in of like Jason Todd dying. Like, we don't have a lot of story. Like, what if Jason Todd's not dead, how can we possibly tell this story? 
So the pitch I gave was just, I said, okay, so this is the teaser of the movie. And I described just as the movie is that, you know, we are, we are in, um, I don't even remember, but it's covered in snow. And, it's and yeah, you know, and he's zipping through there. And this is why, why, you know, while Joker is beating Jason Nesson, we are at the very end of Death in the Family. And then, you know, the building blows up. Uh, Batman finds Jason's body, um, and then we cut to black. I said, and that's the beginning. And like, afterwards, I heard a couple of guys like, after that, we think like, that's how you do it. That's how you do Death in the Family. We do it in three minutes and just get to it. And like, like we all talked later, like, we're doing this movie. We're just totally doing it. Um, yeah. And for me, after that, I was like, great. Now I'm going to take all this story and make it into like, like 90 minutes? Just yeah. like this, yeah. And just, I just took the good parts. I mean, that's what I came down to. It was really like a, a lot fun. of the DC animated are, and we love them for that. Ah, man. I think they're I think they're great gateway drugs to comics. Sorry, oh, kids, my. but gateway entries into comics. Go with that one. Um. So again, <laughs> I often say gateway drugs. I often say comics are gateway drugs into reading. Speaking of which, for the reluctant reader, I've heard that Hilo does quite well. Um, it is. I think it helps that like the first like ten pages, there's no dialogue except them going ah. Um, over and running and over. from a robot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's out on shelves. September first. If this is up after September first, you can go out and buy it right now. <laughs> this goes up over the weekend. Well, put in your orders. Go to your little local comic uh, or bookstore and pick it up. Is it going to be in comic shops and books? Bookstores, comic stores, available online at all your major online outlets. I realize uh, why I don't always love doing the Skype chats, because you can't sign it for me. <laughs> and when you come to L.A., I'll be uh, on set. If you hold it up. Outside of L.A. So, yeah. So, I, I like having these things signed by the people on Geekscape. Uh, and we're just going to wait until, you know, Comic-Con or, or WonderCon or something to have it have it happen. So... Um, dude, Judd, thank you for coming on the show. It was my pleasure. It really, really was. It's so good to see you again, sir. It really is. <laughs> we're just going to have to go back and talk on Facebook or something. Uh, the book is called Hilo. It's out September 1st. Your kids are going to love it. And um, for those of you who say, hey, I want comics for kids, or I just want something my kid will read, uh, the first one's out, and this, there's going to be five more after this. So get them into it. Uh, thanks a lot, Judd. Thank you, sir. I really had a good time. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.